0: We're talking about Jesus' Discourse on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, Jesus' longest sustained teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, but because it is so lengthy in Matthew, spread across chapters 24 and 25, we're actually looking at the same discourse through Mark, the great Bible summarizer who doesn't have time for two-page discourses. And so he will fit everything that Matthew spread across four pages of your Bible. Mark will fit in like seven lines, and that makes it a little easier for us to follow. Uh, So we're using Mark 13 for that. And we talked last week about the context for uh, this particular discourse. We talked about the genre of apocalyptic prophecy and what it is and is not attended to, intended to accomplish, what is its purpose, and its purpose is to tell us about how to live in these last days, and we talked about these last days representing a quality of time, not a quantity of time it 's not about how many last days are there it 's about what kind of days are the last days and Jesus will answer that within the the discourse here. The immediate context of the passage in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke is all about the temple. And Jesus uh, being with his disciples while they compliment the temple, or Jesus being in the temple while the religious rulers are uh, arguing with him, persecuting him, rejecting him. And the disciples ask, uh, in light of something pretty dramatic, Jesus says, two reasonable questions. What was the dramatic thing that Jesus says about the temple? It's going to be torn down. You won't find one stone left on top of another. It is going to be completely decimated. And that's pretty shocking. If you are one of Jesus' disciples, if you understand the meaning and the importance of the temple in the Jewish theological system, what Jesus has come as a part of, uh, that's a pretty dramatic thing to say. And the disciples hearing this ask Jesus two questions, because there are two different things they want to know. But the disciples, we said, might not know that they're two different things that they're asking. It'd be hard for the disciples to imagine that the destruction of the temple could happen in the context of anything other than the final consummation, the final judgment of all things. So the disciples ask this question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And the disciples don't know yet that those are actually two different events, separated by a lot of years in between. But Jesus is going to answer both of those questions, and from his answers, we can figure out that, okay, these things are about the last days, this entire period of time, until he comes, and the, the sign of the end of the age is simply that those things are present, that those things are happening. But as to the destruction of the temple, well, this generation will not pass away. You'll, you'll see that very soon. Um, and in fact, they'll see it in two different ways, as he will uh, soon describe. So that is sort of catching us up on the context and, and where we are. And what we had done so far was talk about Mark 13 The verses 5 through 23 being the last days, sort of section of the passage, where in this first section, verses 5 through 13, Jesus talks about general trials and tribulations. He describes the characteristics, the quality of the time. And then in verses 14 through 23, he gets very specific about the destruction of the temple. That is a specific event that will happen within these last days, but as opposed to describing kind of a general characteristic, wars, rumors of war, trials, tribulations, disasters, false messiahs. That's just a general description of the kinds of things that will happen. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, is a very specific event that can only happen once, and Jesus refers to that in, uh, in verses 14 through 23. So where we were next, and so everybody good with where we're caught up? Or do you have any questions that you've thought of or anything we need to unpack on that section before we work our way through the rest of this passage and, and try to go parse out what Jesus is talking about daphne will you read mark 13 24 to 27
1: On the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is here. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is here at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning. Let he come suddenly and find you asleep.
0: So the first part here, 24 to 27, the disciples asked about two things, but one of the things they asked about was Jesus' return, the end of all things, what we call the second coming. It's called the uh, This this fulfillment that all of scripture has been telling us to anticipate, to wait for. Uh, since the fall. So the disciples asked about the second coming, and it makes sense that Jesus would speak not just about uh, the, the destruction of the temple, but they, he would answer that question as well. And the way we know that he's answering that question as well is in the type of language that he used. Remember, one of our markers of this genre of apocalyptic prophecy is technical terms, the way it uses language, words and phrases that are supposed to trigger in your mind images of a specific thing. So we talked last week about the abomination of desolation as being temple language, and we get that from Daniel, and that's telling us this is about destruction of the temple. Well, when you hear this imagery sun darkened when you hear the the title for jesus son of man you're back in this realm of technical language you're in language that is pointing you to one very specific event and that is the coming of god in judgment the idea of jesus riding on the clouds is always a reference to a visible second coming his coming in judgment um And so within this framework of answering the question, all that stuff feels like it comes right together. But within the timeline of history, eschatology history, those things could actually be separated by a great deal of time. So in some ways, Jesus's answer is, uh, of course, completely accurate and not the answer that the disciples were hoping for. Because what the disciples were hoping for is probably deep down in all of our hearts what we're hoping for, which is a giant obvious warning sign that Jesus is about to return that gives us still enough time to get our act together. <laughs> because what we would selfishly want is the ability to keep on keeping on, to keep doing what we want to do, live the way we want to live, think the way we want to think, but not be surprised by Jesus' return. None of y'all want to be cheating on your tax returns when the Lord comes, right? much less any of the other sins that plague our lives. And so we want this sort of warning that, all right, it's tomorrow. I got 24 hours to get ready. And Jesus doesn't give them that. Instead, he gives them two different things. One is this quality, these types of trials and tribulations that will define the entire inner Advent period. And he gives them this imagery of what his coming is. The moment where it's too late to change anything. The son of man actually is descending from heaven on the clouds. The sun is darkened. That coming is upon us and so uh, the second coming and the consummation are that's okay so this is the broadly second coming language um, this is the when the slightly unsatisfying answer for them and then this gets, starting in verse 33, we get to the point of Jesus sharing all of this. If your goal is to be ready for Jesus' coming, if your goal is to not be caught unprepared and not ready for the Lord to return, when should you be ready? Ready? Now, all the time, that's when you should be ready because no matter, and I'm going to go through some, some alternate readings of this part of the text in just a little bit, because I think there are two different ways you can actually break down this passage here in terms of what specifically he's talking about, but the result of either of those interpretations is exactly the same thing. Everything that needs to happen for Christ to come in judgment has happened. Prior to today, at the very least. And frankly, prior to AD 71. So, because all of that has happened, and God is recording this as the words of Jesus in scripture for his church to use for the next 2,000 years minimum, or beyond that until Christ comes, what is the point of this passage? What is the point of Jesus teaching his people this, if not, verses 33 to 37, therefore be on guard. Do not be caught unprepared. Um, And that is the purpose of all apocalyptic prophecy in scripture is for us to get ready. Um, The alternative reading of that breakdown is instead of bouncing back and forth between uh, eighty seventy destruction of the temple general trials and tribulations language, and second coming like the second coming we 're waiting for jesus 's final return language that what Jesus is actually the two events he 's talking about there are the general trials and tribulations that describe our age, but his coming in judgment against Israel for their rejection of him and of the covenant, which, as I said last week, in either reading is what happened in 8070. In 8070, everything related to the covenant curses on Israel were fulfilled. Not about the individual salvation of a person, about God's covenant with Israel as his people. And the promise that if they will be faithful, he will bless them. And if they are unfaithful, he will uh, not be with them. He will curse them. He will come against them in judgment. And when Jesus talks about coming in judgment, when Jesus talks about that, what I said is in time, second coming In judgment language? Well, certainly that did happen in AD 70. And so it's also uh, reasonable to read this passage as not fixating uh, on the second coming we're waiting for, but answering their question very much in the context of the covenant with Israel, the curses that God brings in his final judgment on them, and All of our trials and tribulations fit into this broader inter-advent period, last days. And what we're waiting for is uh, the final consummation of all things, where God will come in judgment against individuals. He'll come in blessing uh, for individuals who are in Christ. But his covenant uh, with Israel was finally judged in 70 AD. Does that make sense? And I honestly don't care which of those two readings you have. I bounce back and forth because the outcome is the same. What am I supposed to do with it? Be on guard. I'm supposed to be ready. I'm supposed to not allow myself to think I've got time because the easiest Satan is not. Satan is less interested in having you reject God in having you reject the truth of the Bible than he is having you say, I've got plenty of time. Because if you say, I reject God, I reject the truth of the Bible, you know that that's a very drastic and radical position. And it's one that you're going to struggle with. And it's one that you're going to be inclined to reevaluate over the course of your life. But if you just say, no, 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 all that stuff is true and good. I've just got time. I'll I'll get serious about that later. I'll think about that later. Satan is thrilled with that because later never comes. Or you may never get a later. You may hope that you get to live to a long old age and that, You know, you get lots of advance notice about the terminal cancer that will one day take your life. But many people don't get to die that way. And so will you be ready to die at a time that you didn't prepare for? When the question is, why didn't God tell us something? Or why did God do this instead of that? The answer is always, and you can go the five whys deep, right? The answer is always ultimately his glory. But let's come down a couple from those. What does Romans 8.28 say the answer always is? our good, the good of those who love God and are called by God according to his purpose. What is that good? Is that good happy? Is that good wealthy? Is that good at peace, satisfied? Maybe a little bit of peace. But what that good is is ready. Ready for the coming of his Son. Everything that God does in this world that you experience is, at a very important level, designed to make you more ready for the coming of his son. How do we get ready for the coming of his son? We become more like his son. We pursue living life within union with his son. Greater experience. Love for his son. I know myself. I mean, I know y'all too. If God said to me, Paul, my son will return in glory and in judgment on Friday, October 14th, 2028. Would that be for my preparedness becoming more like his son good? Maybe for y'all, not for me. Not for me. Because every fiber of my being would say, I really do have time. I mean, there's complete forgiveness in Christ. There's grace that's enough to cover all of my sin. So why not send more that grace might abound? (laughs) Right? That's a pretty good plan. Uh, And so in his wisdom, God tells us and them, whichever reading you take, to be ready. Be on your guard, because this sign of the end of the age that you're looking for, when it comes, it will be too late. I'm not going to give you the day before sign. I'm not going to give you the month before sign. I'm giving you the moment before sign, and you will have made your choice by then. John.
2: This is specific to this, but in general, I mean, how do you make this hit home to yourself? I want to just jump. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, when are the rest of you going to take Jesus more seriously? <laughs> yeah, I... Um, <laughs> didn't you hear that last <laughs> time?
1: Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great rhetorical question. I don't have an answer for you. Because it is, it is the great rhetorical question of the Christian life. is How do I discipline myself to ask God? God, work... Do this work in me. Don't make me read about this for the purpose of getting excited. For me to do this work in someone else. I'm always eager to do this work in someone else. I can make y'all more ready for his coming. (laughs) But that is not my job. It is his job to make you ready for his coming. And when I'm doing that job, I'm not doing the job of him doing that work in me. And, and my uh, taking hold of that by faith. And faith works. Faith doesn't just believe. Faith works. So great question for which I have no answer. All right, so let's move forward with that then, and we'll see if we can get those questions answered. How do the end times views? So there's lots of different views on end times, and there's the one that uh, Matt was alluding to with respect to uh, Israel being a different of God's plan uh, compared to the church. So how do the various views of end times reckon with this text? How do they deal with what this text is saying? How do they interpret it to then justify their own position, what they believe? And there's a lot of terms in the world of eschatology. There's a lot of words we need to describe. So that's what the handout uh, is. But the two things I never want us to lose sight of, because you can really go down a rat hole... In uh, eschatology, in the study of these, the, these different positions, I want us to never lose sight of the questions we're trying to answer. How do we read these prophecies? What do we understand about the Interadvent period? And all of that in the context of why? Why would God tell us this stuff? What is God's goal? So don't lose sight of Romans 8:28 that he is uh, making us more ready. For the day of Christ's coming. And then we'll define some terms, and then next week we'll apply these terms to the text. First I'm going to define the terms briefly, and then we'll come back and work our way through the passage in light of each of these terms. And then I gave you the handout so that you don't uh, feel the need to take quite so many uh, notes about them. And one other thing about these terms is not all of these are mutually exclusive. So some of them, if you, if you are a historical premillennialist, you cannot also be a postmillennialist. Those are mutually exclusive. But some of these you can be both. You can be amillennial and partial preterist. You can be uh, futurist and premillennial. Like there are, there are They're not all mutually exclusive, so we'll kind of work our way through some of that. All right, let's start with futurist futurism is as it sounds all the predictive prophecies are about a future time and that time is right at the time of the second coming so if you look at my beautiful drawing there that's to represent a timeline and the key markers on the timeline are the cross Christ's life, death, and resurrection AD 70 and then everything else that happens in between until the return of Christ And what the little red squiggles are going to suggest as we go through these options is what period of time do the events take place that are being discussed in this passage? So for a futurist, all of the prophecies of the Bible's apocalyptic prophecy are describing a yet future time. Jesus is talking about a time that is In the future, and particularly in futurism, right before the second coming. So you would be able to have some markers of, okay, now we are really close to Jesus returning because we have these fulfillment of these prophecies and these signs that we can see. And again, I'll talk more about all this later. Preterist. Um, There's no such thing as a full preterist. I mean, there is, but you don't encounter them in the wild. Uh, and so most of the time when I say preterist I'm talking about partial preterist but preterism is just the opposite of futurism preterism says no 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 this passage and revelation all the Bible's apocalyptic prophecies are about AD 70 they are about God's judgment On Israel for their breaking his covenant. And so the prophecies about the future, the predictions about the future are predicting the window of time between A.D. 20-something-ish when Jesus said them to A.D. 70 when they are full preterism, completely fulfilled, partial preterism, completely fulfilled except the consummation of all things. So why do I say that there's no such thing as a full preterist? What do you have to believe if you believe that all of the Bible's apocalyptic prophecies were fulfilled in AD 70? It's on Karen's tongue. She just can't believe it's true. That this is the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) Yeah, that's the face we all make. Right? Because Jesus did return in A.D. 70 in judgment on his people Israel. And if you believe that all of the events that Jesus describes, not just in in the Olivet Discourse, but in Revelation as well, if you believe that all of those events are about that covenant and that fulfillment in A.D. 70, then we're done. It's pretty terrifying, right? (laughs) It's pretty terrifying. But partial preterism is a very reasonable, in my opinion, reading of the text that says, no, we're not crazy. Jesus has not come in fullness of glory and established the everlasting kingdom of which we are a part. But the Bible is, when it talks about apocalyptic prophecy, the Bible is, by and large, very focused on AD 70, very focused on God's Uh, judgment against Israel for breaking his covenant, which makes sense because that covenant is the whole of the Old Testament. And then John the Baptist comes along as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he says, there's only one more coming after me. And he is greater than me. So much greater than me. I'm not fit to untie his sandals. And so what does Jesus do then? He, He ushers in the age of the church So that God's people have a home as God's judgment comes against Israel, his former people, who were told this is what would happen. They were told in the minor prophets this is what would happen, and now Jesus tells them in Mark 13, this is what's going to happen. You want to know what the signs of these things are? I'll tell you, when people flee into the mountains and the abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not stand, it happened. Things got real bad real fast. Right? So partial preterism is a is a reasonable uh, reading of the text. Historicism is the idea that single events in history fulfill prophecies. So you take every verse of prophecy in the Old Testament uh, when I say prophecy, I'm talking about apocalyptic prophecies. Okay? You take every single verse of apocalyptic prophecy in the Old Testament, you take the ones in the Olivet Discourse, you take the ones in Revelation, and you map them to a single event in history. And that's where you get the guys on television who have really beautiful graphics and drawings and timelines and they're the ones who tell you Revelation chapter 14 verse 3 is about this phase of the Panelaplanesian War or the invasion of Iraq or whatever it is. There's, There's a straight line between a biblical prophecy and a single event in history. And that's taking place. That's why I drew all those lines. Those are taking place spread out between when Jesus Uh, came and when Jesus returns. Uh, And so you've got examples there. The Pope at the time of Martin Luther is the beast of Revelation 13. The Black Plague of the Middle Ages is Revelation 6. These guys get very creative in their drawing lines between things that the Bible says and things that they observe in history. Uh, So those are all straight lines. I'm trying to make the point that there's a one-to-one connection between the event on the page of Scripture and the event in the timeline of history. Unlike idealism, where I tried to draw this vague, hazy aura that's not on the line of history, but above it. Because what I'm trying to show you about uh, idealism is that idealists believe that all the prophecies are to be spiritualized, that these apocalyptic prophecies are not about events that are going to take place in human history on earth they're about the kinds of events that are taking place in the war in the heavenlies and that these things paint a picture for us of what's happening in the spiritual realm as uh, God prepares for his total reign and dominion over that and so you don't draw lines down to our timeline you just know that these are uh, spiritual things Battles between good and evil. Uh, They have symbolic application in history. So you could look at something that happens in life and say, well, that's because there's a war going on in the heavenlies. But you can't draw a line from the passage straight to that and say that this is the fulfillment, uh, one of the other. Iterism is a little bit different. So I still have a squiggly line for you. Instead of a bunch of straight lines... But my squiggly line is on the timeline of history. And that's because what Iterism tells you is the prophecies of the Bible, the apocalyptic prophecies, are not describing single events. They're describing kinds of events, quality of time. And those kinds of events will happen, do happen, from AD 70, even before, until the time of Christ's coming. So wars and rumors of war. Do I have to point to a single specific war to say that that prophecy is fulfilled? No, I can point to the many occasions in human history where that event has taken place. I don't have to spiritualize it, but I do generalize it. It's a kind of event. False Christ, this concept of antichrist. I don't have to pick one. I don't have to say that it is Nero or it is George Soros. I have to say it's anyone Who sets themselves up in powerful opposition to the ultimate kingship of Christ. Anyone who leads people toward themselves and away from Christ is an anti-Christ. And so when the Bible describes this antichrist figure in lots of imagery, apocalyptic detail, I'm not supposed to pick apart all of those details to try and figure out if it's this person or that person. I'm supposed to recognize that there will be these types of false Christs until he comes again. Uh, Any questions about that side of the page?
2: you have to be one or the other of the i know you said there's bleeding in on both sides of the page obviously but could you could you be partial preterist in your reading of matthew 24 and interest in your reading of revelation generally I mean, generally I mean, yeah you're not
0: really an interest at that point so what you just described is basically what i am <laughs> and you're not really a, an interest at that point in a technical sense um you are acknowledging the idea that what Christ was describing in the last days is quality not quantity and those kinds of events are what we're going to see all around us. We wouldn't be able to say that these events these kinds of events are specifically the fulfillment of any prophecy because our claim is that all the specific prophecies were fulfilled in AD 70 except the final return. So you, you don't have to think iterism is a bad idea but you cannot technically Hold both. Because the question is, where are the prophecies being fulfilled in history? Are they being fulfilled in history in the spiritual realm or the earthly realm? Question one. And then if the earthly realm, when? And iterism says, bump, 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 bump. And preterism says, here. But what Jesus described about here is also relevant until the time of his... Right? Y'all see the distinction we're making here. So it's, it's an academic distinction that doesn't matter a ton for us. but uh, Whereas some of the other ones, like idealism, is just a terrible idea. <laughs> like, uh, that Jesus was talking only about the spiritual realm when when he said the temple's going to be destroyed and the apostle said when is the temple going to be destroyed and then Jesus goes on a three page tirade about the war in the heavenlies totally unrelated to the temple in front of them that they had asked about that's just bad reading that's not good what's called exegesis how do we take the text and understand what it means
2: how can histor- yeah. a historicist ever be confident in their? this is what he was talking about in This guy was the worst that ever happened. Well, they're not. Others
0: came along. No, they're not. But that's why, in the book we read in Garage Gang, Mistakes Were Made But Not by Me, one of the small sections that the author talks about is. the doomsday end of the world people who make predictions about when this stuff is happening and that they could be totally certain and then totally wrong and they're undeterred they just make another one. Oh, i missed this detail i missed that data now we know for certain it's next thursday not this thursday I mean, people are nuts the coronavirus not the black place <laughs> that's right we have to shift our shift our understanding there i need a little more caffeine to make the last 10 minutes All right, dispensationalism. And this is a term that we've all got to understand and wrap our minds around. Not just the term, but the view. And the reason is because uh, it is the dominant view of the American church, and particularly the southern American church. And um, most people, by default, I don't want to say believe this, but think they believe this because they don't know what else there is to believe. This is just so... Much the common language of the Southern American Christian Church. Um, So the idea of dispensationalism is that God has worked in different plans. You'll hear the word economies used. That's technically the term dispensation. God has these different plans throughout history, and the covenants are per plan. So there's Old Testament covenants that are for the plan of Israel. There are New Testament covenants that are for the plan of the church. There's not overlap between the covenants, the plans, or the prophecies related to either. It's either about bucket A or about bucket B. In the Old Testament, God uh, operated with faithfulness toward Israel. They have currently rejected that. 8070 is God's judgment on Israel, but not final judgment on Israel. 8070, therefore, has nothing to do for the church, nothing to say to us, nothing to take away from it. Um, because God, seeing that that was coming, created a plan B. Plan B is the church. And then what Jesus talks about in some of these passages and some of these prophecies are how is God going to deal with the church? and fix the mess that was made with Israel. Uh, God does have everlasting, in this view, special love for his people Israel. He is going to give them another bite at the apple, so to speak, or a chance to not bite the apple. But in the meantime, he's created the church, And he's working out his covenant of grace in the church before he finishes out this plan with Israel. Well, that plan with Israel includes harsh judgment and tribulation. The kinds of things described in these general trials and tribulations that we say are part of the last days, they say, no, no, no. Those are part of the last days once God resumes what he's going to do with Israel. And it's not fair for people under the covenant of grace to have to live through that, right? Because that is intended to punish Israel for disobedience and to wake them up and call some of them to believe. Before Jesus returns, they get a seven-year warning. We'll talk about this later. So you got this seven years to kind of get your stuff together. So it's the last-ditch effort for people to receive Messiah before Jesus the thousand year reign of peace is ushered in fulfillment of all things. But what do you do with the church during that? Because it's not fair to make the church have to live through trials and tribulations that are the fault of the old covenant when we're not in the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. So what are you going to do? What do you do with the church? You got to get us out of here. You got to get us out. And so we need a secret rapture. You take the language of being called up to heaven. You take the language of you never know when it's going to happen. One will be left standing and another will be taken. You take this language that is Jesus' very common and Scripture's very common. Hey, so be on guard all the time. Be on guard. You take that language and you say, he's not just telling you to be on guard. He's telling you that you're going to miss the rapture. Uh, so, where did this come from? That middle paragraph there on dispensationalism is a, a more condensed version of what I just said. Uh, Christ comes and calls us out of this world, the church, seven year tribulation, things get bad on earth, God attempts to reapproach Israel with offers of redemption. And so, it's these dispensations, this different working of God throughout history. So surely the view of the end times, the view of the covenants, because this doesn't just affect our view of the last days, this affects our view of covenant. It affects our view of God. How does God work with his people? So surely the dominant view of how God works with his people in covenant faithfulness and what will happen at the end of times, surely the majority view on that was taught straight from the mouth of Jesus and the churches believed it for 2,000 years. Or it was invented in the mid-1800s by an Irish-Anglican priest. Either one. Could go either way on this, but it was the second. Um, This is the view that uh, John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren dreamed up. Um, And the impact of that was that nothing matters except being ready. Nothing matters except evangelism. Building long-term institutions of education and building churches to the glory of God, building uh, multi-generational faithfulness within families. None of that matters because you're not going to have time to see any of it. And all that matters is that when Jesus comes back next Thursday, we are ready. Where this really took off was not with the Plymouth Brethren. It was with the Schofield Bible. Most of you have probably heard of or seen or read the Schofield Bible. And this was a pastor from Texas who uh, wrote a systematic theology and kind of expanded Darby's, te- uh, uh, Darby's teachings. But then he wrote a Bible with very detailed study notes in it. And that was not a super common thing yet when he did this. And so it was one of the first widely publicized study Bibles Uh, It was one of the first broadly available study Bibles, especially in the United States and the southern United States. And so what happened was, in the 20th century, as uh, this uh, evangelistic fervor takes over in the early 20th century, as tent revivals and the expansion of the church personal uh, evangelism, as all of that sort of exploded and Christianity for the first time in its history became less about God gathering and perfecting the saints into the body of Christ and the church and more about you and Jesus, each individual, you and Jesus, um, people start buying Bibles, buying study Bibles. And whose study Bible was available to buy? Schofield's. And so when people are not getting theological training from sermons, because sermons are just tent revival evangelism, right? Not getting theological education from great books about theology that are written. They're getting their theological education from the notes in their study Bible. And who wrote the notes in their study Bible? C.I. Schofield. Uh, And so that, and not any thing about its believability or accuracy or relevance to the text, that is why dispensationalism is such the dominant view uh, in the church. And why if you ever talk to anyone about the second coming who is a Christian, uh, you should fully expect that they have not thought about it very much, and that what they have thought about it and think they believe is some version of Rapture, get the church out of here. God revives Israel. Jesus establishes a physical throne on the earth and rules over Israel at a time of peace. And then we inherit something that comes next. Which, frankly, if you push on that, many of them will believe is that we are disembodied spirits floating around with harps in heaven. Right? Because that's how bad, bad's not even a fair word. That's how absent biblical teaching on these subjects are people just fill the vacuum with little bits and pieces for i mean how influential were what were those fiction books when we were teenagers the left behind series how influential were the left behind a series of fiction books on most of our understanding of eschatology ridiculously influential karen Much more America, though, with Christianity in the last two centuries, the doctrine came across to us. We screwed it up and then sent it back. And by then, they'd abandoned true doctrine anyway. So there was almost nobody left to tell them, "No, this stuff the Americans are now exporting through their missionaries is nuts." Yeah, that's, that's not a satisfying answer. I'd say it also
2: knowing a lot of evangelists and having a lot of conversations with them. It scratches a Gnostic itch that we all have, which is to know something.
0: Something secret. This,
2: you know, I can look at the newspaper. What you think is just this news, I can map it to That's right. these things. You know, I know what's coming, coming.
0: I know what this really means. Yeah, right. As opposed to just, you know, it was a bad trade agreement, you guys.
2: I mean, I've, I, I recently was like, well, maybe Trump has like the Cyrus blessing. And
1: the, you know, he's yeah. and I was like, <laughs>
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Believe what you want. And a lot of people
1: that you talk to, like, they don't know their. They think there's one, two, three views total. Like, right. They don't even know there's more ways of looking at it. Like they think these are the three views and that's all
0: there is. And people know uh, now. So in the early 20th century, people's theology uh, came from the notes of their study Bible. But now people's theology is back to coming from either the sermons they hear, because people go to church again and not as many tent revivals, um, or the books that are available on the bookshelf at the Christian bookstore. And now you don't even have that. Now you have Amazon. Whatever Amazon's algorithm recommends as meaningful theology is where most Christians get their theology. So they're listening to bad sermons and they're reading bad books. And you can't blame them for having bad theology. Nathan, did you have a question?
1: Mom will tell you at lunch.
0: Mom, Mom will tell you at lunch. So the views that you take of dispensationalism versus connected covenants... And the views that you take of all those terms we defined on the first side of the page are ultimately going to lead you to one of three, maybe four positions. And that's what's on the rest of the back page. The first is premillennialism. Now, there's historic premillennialism, which I'm not going to cover a whole lot, because most of what you encounter today will not be a historic premillennial. It will be a premillennial dispensationalist, back up to what I just described. And what they're saying is the prophecies in the Bible foretell a thousand-year earthly reign of Christ, where Christ is physically present on a physical throne with a physical temple and a physical kingdom, And, of course, if that happens, it makes sense that that would be Israel, right? Because he is the true king of Israel. And so Christ is going to come back, and he's going to reign over them, his people. And that will happen, again, because of the trials and tribulations. That will happen after the church has been extracted from the situation and put off somewhere else. So God really has two kingdoms. Um, He's going to have this, when we're living in this pre-millennial time. But the seven-year rapture is the true pre like the right before the millennial time and that's where all these prophecies are going to be fulfilled before that the other is post-millennial which is um, that the prophecies are about a non-literal which means not exactly a thousand years but the way the Bible uses a thousand years in, in prophecy which is to represent a very long period of time so there is a non-literal very long period of time in which Christ reigns over his people and who are his people after the church, the church, which may include Jew and Gentile, because it includes everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that reign of Christ over the church is so glorious that it bleeds backwards in history. And so what the church can expect, because that is our future, is that our present is steady progress toward that future. And so the church... Can be sure that our influence on the culture will be positive, that the church will influence governments and countries and people groups and systems of education because Christ is the head of the church and Christ is the ultimate king. And what else could happen? What else could these prophecies be talking about but an upward trajectory toward that ultimate kingdom of peace and glory? And so, postmillennials are very, optimistic, not just about the future, but optimistic about now. The, the gospel will go forth as the waters cover the earth. It will find success. The fields will be white for harvest. We, in post-millennialism, declare those promises as things that God is doing now, as he will ultimately fulfill them. Amillennialism is very similar to Except it says, not, maybe not now. <laughs> we can be certain about that kingdom. We can be certain about uh, the reign of peace that will come. Uh, we can be certain about the perfection of the lordship of Christ in that kingdom. But the age in which we live is not there yet, which both sides grant. So millennials say, therefore, we can't be so sure about the progress the church is going to make. This idea of the gates of hell notwithstanding the march of the church, that doesn't mean that those gates won't push us back quite a bit before Christ finally comes and conquers. That doesn't mean that the church won't have really uh, dark, difficult times in the interim until he comes. And so... With respect, not with respect to what God will do with the church and the fulfillment of those prophecies, but with respect to the cultural and social transformation that is possible now, we can be hopeful, but we have no reason to be certain. And that is significantly the difference between those two positions. And to make it even more confusing, what you'll find when you talk to many amillennialists, Jake and I being among them, is that we would call ourselves optimistic uh, millennialists we think the church can have social and cultural transformation and in some cases does but that is the grace and blessing of God it is not the fulfillment of a promise it is not to be expected God does not owe us that in order to be true to his word Um, so that's those views questions about those and then next week we'll dive into the text with respect to those views All right. thanks everybody